Man, he is worthy of every song we could sing. I love that song, Build My Life. I love this worship set. I love our worship team. Man, they are just crushing it all for Jesus and all about Jesus, but we get to benefit from that incredible worship. And I'm, I'm hoping that you were able to clear some space out wherever you're watching this, on your break, in your car, at home, like kids running around. I don't know where you're watching this, but I hope you were able to clear some space out and just worship. And if not, if you were like running around, like after the sermon, go back and watch those songs and get your heart set on Jesus. You need it. It's like breathing. I need it. We, got, we can't keep running through life like we're holding our breath. And worship is, how, is, is one of the ways we like spiritually breathe. Anyway, I'm ready to jump into this next message. It's called More Than, More Than. There's a whole lot of more than themes in this message as we look at a story about a guy who has been notoriously known in Sunday school classes around the world as Doubting Thomas. We'll get to that in a second. I'm not really cool with that nickname, but we'll get to that in a second. Before we do, would you just pray with me? Dear God, we thank you so much for your love for us, for the ability we have, even in this distance, through this technology, to connect. Man, some people are watching this and they're feeling disconnected. Would you just help them know that we're with them, that you're with them too during this service? Um, People struggling through life, maybe worn out, just running a very busy pace, um, trouble keeping up with all the things they have to do, would you let them find some rest in this space? Would you show them more of yourself, the God who gives peace and rest to those who follow him? Would you help us all to get, you, you know what we need, and you're the one who speaks through your word. It does not return without hitting its mark, so we just want to say we're willing. Here are our hearts Do your thing through your spirit in this service and in this time, in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're talking about doubting Thomas today, and uh, I placed my little, my Bible a little too far over here, drag it back in. Um, and, uh, And we're looking at a passage in John chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, and if you don't have your Bible, man, I love to like scratch up my Bibles. I don't even know if you can really see that. Like I love to write in my Bibles. For me, it's just such a cool way to take notes. And you can tell my favorite Bibles, I have a lot of Bibles, are the ones that are all marked up. And if you're marking up your Bible, take a picture of that. Shoot that to me on Instagram. I'd love to see your notes and what God's speaking to you. It always surprises me that he has something to say to you that might not be something that I'm planning on saying. And God just is so good that way in, in uh, using his word as it goes out. He does it because he loves you. We're looking at this verse here in these, this story here after the resurrection. So it's, it's kind of timely that we're hitting it up after the Easter services, and that's intentional. We're looking at two big stories this week and next week to kind of end our about time for some good news series. I told you it was going to run through Easter, and now it's running through Easter. Not do it, through it. And I'm really excited about what God has been laying on my heart for these two passages. So if you have your Bibles, you you flip to John chapter 20, or you're using an app on your phone or whatever, 
pulled John chapter 20, and I want to read to you, and then we're going to talk about it, verses 19 through 29, 10 verses. You think you can hang on for 10 verses? Can you lock it in for 10 verses? God's word for us is way better than anything I could say. So here we go. Verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, it was resurrection day, on that evening, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you, and with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Some serious business there. That's for a different sermon at a different time, though. It continues on, and this is the story I really want to get to, the part that really I think will have most of our focus right now. It continues on, and it says this. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. More than. I want to talk to you about more than and Thomas's unfortunate and exciting and kind of awesome conclusion here in the story about a disciple who was kind of struggling to get his head around and heart around all that had happened. Thomas was a disciple of Jesus, and for those of you that grew up in the church and spent a lot of time in it, you'd probably know that he has a nickname. It's not a nickname given to him by God. It's not a nickname given to him by his fellow disciples or teammates. It's a nickname that we have given to him in the church, not this church. Throughout history, Thomas has always been referred to as Doubting Thomas. I got a problem with this nickname, and I got a problem with nicknames in general. I mean, some of them are good, and I think about the nicknames I've had in life, and uh, some of them are given to you by friends, and some of them are given to you by, by coaches, and my buddies in college would call me Otter. That's kind of an obvious one, right? Like the nickname is just pointing out something kind of obvious with a twist to it. My last name is Ott. So it makes sense that people would just nickname me Otter. In fact, one of my closest friends and sweet mates, Big Dave, we're like juniors, 
he had called me Otter so much that he had forgotten my real name. We were tight. Like, I don't, we were tight. He calls me Otter, and one day he pulls me aside. He's like, this is going to sound ridiculous, Otter, but I forget your real name. Like, a nickname can stick sometimes. One of the other nicknames I had was Mel. It was uh, because a baseball coach has named me Mel, and that kind of rolled into a bunch of other nicknames, Mel, Marlini, Melvin, all of those things surrounded me in my baseball teams through high school and a little bit after that. And uh, uh, Mel was one of my nicknames, kind of like way off in reference to somebody. And one of the other nicknames I got growing up was Rev. That was a nickname I hated. It stuck a little bit because people would call me that because of what my father did. He was a pastor and Somehow, I just ended up being called Rev. I hated that nickname. I didn't want to have my life be defined by what my father did, and so I hated that nickname, Rev, and people called me Rev. And A nickname can capture a moment. I always wondered how you hear nicknames from some people, and I wonder how they ended up with their nickname. I think a lot of times a nickname pops up from one moment in time or one action or one thought that you had said out loud, or one unfavorable moment, embarrassing moment that was caught by somebody and a nickname given, and it just sticks. Like when somebody has a nickname Booger, you got, you got to kind of wonder where that nickname came from. Was it a bad moment in junior high school? How did that, how did that end up being the nickname? I'm not a fan of those kind of nicknames. The nicknames that capture one moment. Uh, Maybe an unfavorable moment, uh, embarrassing moment, and then they, they stick. And Thomas is one of these guys where he has one moment that we label him with that sticks. And so throughout Sunday schools across America, when this story is taught, Thomas is referred to as Doubting Thomas. When you Google this story, what you'll find is a bunch of Articles and messages and stuff all titled Doubting Thomas. The reality is, though, I don't think, I think I see more of myself and Thomas in good ways and maybe not so good ways. But I think there's so much more to him than just a nickname, Doubting Thomas. There's so much more to him than just a moment when he had questions about what was going on, when he seemed skeptical about what everybody else was saying was happening to Jesus. There's so much more to him. And I think like, if you can take a moment and dive into Thomas and we can look at his story with resurrected Jesus together, I think that what you start to see is a little more of yourself in Thomas's story. We can learn a little something from Thomas about who we are. And the very first thing I got to learn about Thomas is he was so much more than a moment. It's easy for us to define ourselves by moments in time and then to live in those moments. And when we live in those moments, we let them stick to us. It's like a nickname we can't shake, we don't want, but we can't get rid of. It sticks to us. Uh, a bad divorce, and a relationship blew up on you. And you end up for a really long time living with that label sticking to you. You made a huge mistake in your past, and it's a known mistake. And people, they just always look at you as a guy who did that thing, or that woman who did that thing. It sticks to you. And 
these moments in time, these periods of time in our life that somehow end up defining more than they should. Somehow they end up being labels we accept and live in. I don't like that Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas, and I don't like that you're still carrying around a label from some mistake you made or something your parents told you. Maybe they said you were never going to be good enough or that you were a failure or that you're ugly or that you don't belong or that, you know, you're a waste of space. I don't know the messages that you've gotten, and I don't know the mistakes you made, and I don't know what moments in time seek to define your story and label you, but I know this, you're more than a moment. You're more than what other people say about you. You're more than the mistakes that you've been carrying around. You are more than than the, the pressure that you feel. You are more than the obstacles that you've had to overcome. You are more than a moment. You're more than it. And Thomas, he's more than just these doubts and questions he has. He's more than the skepticism he's bringing to this conversation about Jesus. He is so much more. We don't know a lot about Thomas. We know his name is mentioned here both in Aramaic and in Greek, the Greek name for Thomas is Thomas, and the Aramaic name for Thomas is Didymus. It's much easier to come up with a nickname off of Didymus than Thomas. You got Tommy, Tommy boy, I don't know, Didymus, you got like Diddy, D, I don't know, I'm probably going to, you know, like it's easier to get yourself, like both names. We also know that those names both mean the same thing, whether in Greek or Aramaic. They both mean twin. We don't know who his twin was or where his twin is, but we definitely think the way they named people, he had a twin. Thomas, we don't know a lot about him, but we know that he was more than just doubting Thomas. Don't let a moment stick. We come to this part of his story after the disciples had already experienced on this evening, risen Jesus. All of them are there. Ten of them are there. Thomas is missing. One of the twelve. Thomas is one of the twelve. Judas was one of the twelve. And at this point in the story, Judas is already dead. Um, he had committed suicide after betraying Jesus and being overcome with what he had done. He so here you have the ten remaining disciples in a room where the doors are locked. Isn't it interesting that it mentions that the doors were locked and it tells us why the doors were locked. It's because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. The rumor was going around like, hey, the disciples maybe stole the body or they were going to come after them to put an end to this story Obviously, word was getting around that Jesus' body was missing. Maybe that even he was resurrected. The disciples, fearful of the Jewish leaders and what they would do to them, fearful because of what had happened to Jesus, they're sitting in a room with the doors locked. Fear will lock you up, man. And what we think fear does when it locks us up, when we give it more control, we think we're protecting ourselves. I mean, that's why God designed fear into our system. It's a good thing in little appropriate bits. We're supposed to signal our fight or flight response with fear. It's supposed to let us know when we're in danger, when we shouldn't like walk that bridge that's fallen apart, when we shouldn't like lean too far over the edge of a cliff, right? Like fear is supposed to remind us 
that our lives have value and we should treat, steward them well. But, but the problem is when fear starts locking you up. When fear starts locking you up, when it keeps you from living, when, when it, it, it traps you and it steals from you, the doors were locked and here the disciples are like inside. Thomas isn't there. Thomas is free. The disciples are locked up. Fear will lock you up and it will steal from you. Your fear of rejection will keep you from experiencing relationships that God has for you. Your fear of people not accepting you for who you are will keep you from coming to a church where people will accept you for who you are and show you God's love in real and tangible ways. Fear of not getting the promotion will keep you from advocating for yourself in the workplace and showing your boss that you have ambition and drive and want to do better. Fear will lock you up. Fear will lock you up in your relationship even at home with your spouse. You don't know how to have this uncomfortable conversation and because you fear it, you never have the conversation that will take you to deeper intimacy. Fear can lock you up with your kids. You're too worried about them liking you. So you won't have a tougher parenting conversation that will help lead them to a better place and ultimately have them, de have them deepen their respect for you and deepen your relationship. Uh, the kind of relationship that will go on forever and ever and ever. You see how fear can lock you up. <laughs> Fear locks you up, and when it locks you up, it steals from you. And fear locks you up when you let it go unchecked. When you let it trump reason. Instead of being focused on the empty tomb, instead of reasoning about what is going on in the story of Jesus and in their story following Jesus, instead of really thinking about what's been happening to them and for them, they put reason right out of the picture and let fear take control. So they're hiding, locked away, being run and ruined by their fear. Maybe you've been run and ruined by your fear. I'm not judging you. I think it's that temptation has touched all of us in some way or another. Maybe you're Fear of a pandemic or a virus is locking you up on the inside, not just on the outside. Maybe your fear of losing your freedom because of a virus is locking you up in fear. All of it traps you and all of it steals God's best from you. Don't let fear lock you up. And what I love about this story is Thomas, there's more to him than a moment. He is not afraid. There's so much more to him. He's free. But here's what else we can learn about Thomas. Being free doesn't automatically mean being good. You see, he's free, but he's not doing good at all. The things we think we need aren't necessarily the cure for what we really have going on in our lives. He wants, he's going to live in his freedom unafraid. He's going to live in that, but he's still not doing that good. We learn about Thomas in a couple of different places in the Bible. John chapter 11 and verse 16, Jesus is uh, 
about to go raise Lazarus from the dead, and his disciples are debating all of this stuff and what's going on. They all knew Lazarus. They all loved Lazarus. At first, they thought he was sick, and they were wondering why Jesus wasn't going to heal their friend. They knew Jesus loved him, and then Jesus clears it up for them. He's like, no, he's not sick. He's dead, and then he's like, we're going to go see him, and you're going to see God's glory so that a bunch of people can believe, and Thomas is confused by this. You see, he's not necessarily a doubting Thomas. He's just somebody who needs to have more information. He wants to take a step that's a reasonable step. He, wants, he doesn't want to put himself out there for no reason blindly. He'll take the step. He just needs a little more information, a little more explaining, some details. So he asks a question in John chapter 11 and verse 16. Or he says to the disciples upon this news for Jesus, he says, Let's us, well, we'll go with him and we'll die too. Like it's confusing, he's dead, but if Jesus is committed to going, then I'll go too and I'll die with Jesus. He wasn't scared. He wasn't afraid, but he still wasn't doing good. John 14, Jesus is talking to him about uh, all the things he was going to do and everything that he is and where he's going, he's going away and he's going to prepare a place for them and he comes to this part where he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe God, believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll come back, and I'll take you to be with me that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am. And here Thomas is unafraid and asking what seems like an obvious question. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? It's a great question that leads to one of my favorite verses where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, this is what we know about Thomas, right? Like, he wasn't just going to jump in. Some of you, you're like, that's me. That's me. I don't want to just jump in. I'm curious. Like, I'm here watching this video. I'm curious. I want to see if this God thing's real, but I'm a little skeptical. And maybe you're like Thomas because you're a little pessimistic. <laughs> if it, it's going to end badly, when we go back to Jerusalem, right? Like, I don't know. Everybody else, they, they'd see this, the cloud and then the silver lining, right? Like, Thomas sees the silver lining and is looking for the cloud <laughs> behind it. I get that because I feel like that's part of my struggle. Sometimes I can be very optimistic and faith-driven, and then the other swing of that pendulum is sometimes I can, when I'm tired especially, I can just be really pessimistic, and I keep waiting for the shoe to drop, keep waiting for the catch, keep waiting for somebody to pop out and say, surprise, here's an extra bill, surprise, here's a health problem, surprise, here's the next challenge in your life, surprise, right? Like, I can be pretty pessimistic. And here you have Thomas. He's not just doubting Thomas. There's so much more to him than that. He's a guy who is going to examine the evidence and then make a step. He's not going to let fear control him, but he wants answers. He, he probably can get lost in the details sometimes. He just wants to process it all, to know what's going on and all the details. He'll go with you, but you got to tell him where you're going. He'll be there for the journey, but you better lay out a quick, 
quick picture about where all the pit stops are going to be. He's the guy who wants to know where you're going to stop at, the, what rest stop you're going to stop at, and where you're going to get food on the way before you leave, right, like on the journey. He wants all of the details, and he wants to process it, and he wants to think it through, and he wants to make a good, logical, sound decision. That sounds good, doesn't it? Like, there's nothing wrong with Thomas feeling that way. There's something admirable about that. But the challenge is he can get lost in it. And his pessimism can take over and drive his life. And so here he is, right? And the question I want to say to Thomas the question is the question that somebody needs to ask me when I get pessimistic and I get lost in the details and I'm over anxious about everything and I'm obsessing about stuff and I'm all stuck in my own head. The question someone needs to ask me, and if you're stuck in your own head and you're overcome with anxiety, it's the question I have for you. If you're lost in the details and trying to figure it all out, here's the question I want to ask you. Is God good? Because if God is good, you can trust him. See, see, I think that's a question underlying all of it for Thomas, for us. Even if he doesn't understand what God is doing through Jesus on the cross. Even if he doesn't understand that and doesn't have all the answers or all the details, doesn't know what's going to happen when they go back to see dead Lazarus, even if he doesn't know the way Jesus is talking about, the picture isn't super clear, for him to take a step, he doesn't need every detail. He needs some details, a reasonable amount, but then he just needs this question answered for himself. Is God good? I don't know how you would answer that question. I think sometimes the message is that God isn't good. The objection people have to God is that they they don't think he is good. They see all of the stuff going on around us, all the pain and all the brokenness and all the confusion. They, 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 They see the cancer and the depression and the evil acts and they think God isn't good. Instead of seeing a broken people causing all kinds of hurt and harm to each other while a God tries to redeem them, bring them to his self where they could have healing from all the brokenness and step into an eternity without the tears. Is God good? It's a very important question. I believe he's good. Psalm 145 verse 9 says this. It says, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. His doubt, he does have doubt in verse 25, it comes up. You see all the disciples, they come back here. We're going to cruise. We've got to pick up the pace a little bit. But he comes back and they say they're super excited, right? Like they're, they're so excited. And the ten disciples, they're all telling him like, hey man, we, we saw the risen Lord. That word told him in verse 25 of your NIV, circle that. That's an active voice 
verb in the original Greek language. So it little is, it, it should kind of say, could say, they kept telling him. They kept telling him, we've seen it. Like you get his skepticism right away. And a bunch of people that are all excited, they're like over and over, they keep telling him, like, yo man, you don't get it. We saw Jesus. He came through. We had the doors locked. We were all scared. Boom, he showed up in the room. We got to see the nails holes in his hands. We got to touch it. And here's where his doubt is. It's doubt because of insufficient evidence. He is not going to base his faith on what other people say. He's going to base his faith on his own journey and experience with Jesus. I like that. There's a lot of people with weak faith that have based their faith on something someone else has said or something someone else has done without ever examining it for themselves. There's people with weak faith who base their faith on tradition. There's people with weak faith who base themselves on attending church. People with weak faith who have a faith that's based just because on, well, I have it because that's what my parents believed and that's where I grew up and that's the church we went to and you gotta be a member of a church and you gotta have someone do a wedding for you. Like, there's weak faith and then there's strong faith. And a strong faith is a reasonable faith. It's an examined faith. And my question for you is, have you examined your faith? Because it's reasonable. You can see it all around you when you start to look for it. If you seek it, you're going to find it. You're going to see a good God who has been pursuing you every step of the way. Doubt is either a catalyst or an excuse. It's a catalyst that will push you to discover truth. And when you discover truth, you will see a God who is personal and real and good and who sent his son to earth for you, Jesus Christ. You're going to see a good God. Faith is either, or doubt is either a catalyst or an excuse. It's an excuse for the unbelieving heart that's just looking for a way out. Not interested in truth, more interested in self. Not interested in finding answers, more interested in justifying their own answers. And I have conversations all the time with people in both categories. Just throwing excuses at the wall, trying to justify their life without God, without truth, their way. It's not good. They're free, but they're not doing good. And then there's people who use doubt questions as a catalyst for faith. And those are my most exciting conversations with people. Questions will pop up. This is a difficult book to read. There's some crazy stuff that happens, especially in the beginning of this book. It's hard to understand how God could let something like a worldwide flood happen and, and all of this other stuff and wars and all of this, this crazy stuff is recorded in the Bible. You just start reading it. You're going to have questions. And if you take the time to really dig into those questions and what the book's actually saying, what the story's actually saying, what the whole thing is actually saying... It's going to be a catalyst for your faith. I'm so glad he had a strong faith because he was examining it and he says to them like, unless I see the nail marks in his hand, he takes it a step further and he touches them. I want to put my fingers where the nails were. 
I want to put my hand into his side. It's not enough what you're just saying to me. I, I'm not going to believe. It's a double negative there. Like there's no way I'm going to believe unless I see this for myself. you got to see Jesus for yourself. You can't see him because I say he's amazing. you got to see it for yourself. He's going to examine it. And uh, his faith, if it was going to be his faith, if it was going to be real faith, he was going to have to own it. And maybe faith doesn't make sense. The songs aren't exciting. You don't get anything out of these messages. You're struggling. You feel disconnected. Maybe it's just because you haven't owned this journey for yourself. His faith would be his own. What's your faith built on? When you see and hear stories of people deconstructing their faith and falling away from the faith or leaving the faith, it's not because their faith was built on Jesus. It's because their faith was built on a bunch of other garbage, like their feelings, like tradition, like church, like prestige. It was built on anything but Jesus. Because when you build your faith on Jesus and you dig into the questions about Jesus and you search more of Jesus, what you find is a faith that grows to be confident. He shows up again in the room, and I love this, you'll get so much if you just start showing up with the right questions in the right place. So next week, seven days from this amazing experience the other disciples had, you find Thomas in the same room, not because of fear with the door locked, because of curiosity. He didn't get his answer right away. It was, it, Jesus didn't show up in a moment. It was seven days of of Thomas wrestling with what's going on, Thomas wondering about what's going on, seven days of struggling in the waiting until God showed up at just the right time. If you show up, Jesus is going to show up too. If you seek him, you will find him, it says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7. If you ask, the door will be open to you. You show up and Jesus is going to be there too. He shows up and he says, Thomas, look at me. Touch the nail scars in my hand. Put your hand in my side. It's me, the resurrected Jesus, God in the flesh for you. See what I've done for you. And at this, Thomas's last line in the Bible, it's not one of doubt. He should never be known for that moment. He had so much more. He says, my Lord and my God, the first time that phrase is given from a human being to Jesus in the flesh, my Lord and my God. I love this story of Thomas, the story of faith, not of doubt. Faith isn't just a lack of doubt. It's, it's, a, it's, not just see, it's also not just seeing everything clearly. Faith is a confidence, and it's an assurance that grows from examining and finding a reasonable faith. A, re- a God who is for you, who came for you, who is good. God will get you close enough, but you're still going to have to take a step of faith. 
In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 6 and 7, it says, Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. Thomas, talk about an examined faith that was strong. He got to do something the other disciples didn't even get to do because he took his questions to the right place. He showed up and experienced the God who showed up for him. His doubt was a catalyst to drive him to seek truth and find Jesus, not an excuse to just walk away and do whatever he wanted. And as a result, he got to touch the wounds of Jesus, when everyone else just saw them. How crazy and awesome is that? If you're skeptical, if you're doubting, if you're struggling, Jesus' heart is for you. He wants to show himself to you. He's been showing up. Maybe you just haven't been seeing it because you've just been making excuses or you haven't been looking for him. You've known something's been missing, but you haven't placed it on him yet. Time to start exploring your faith in who Jesus is. Taking your questions to the right place. Faith is something that you deepen as you walk with Jesus. It's a confidence that grows. And here's how to grow your faith. Just start practicing Matthew 7, 7. Ask and seek. Ask and seek from Him. That's not Google searching. That's asking and seeking from Him. Read your Bible. Discover more. And own Jesus for yourself through faith. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Thomas and his story. We're so much more than like our worst moments or bad moments. And I just pray that, you know, this... Um, this reminder of Thomas who didn't let fear own him, didn't let the questions play out in his excuse, but he wanted to find what was true. I know that journey for all of us, it takes, you know, different amounts of time, but ultimately as we lay out our heart's questions before you, we find the answers we've been seeking in you. You are truth. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.